Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. I am a sinner. I can go sideways, uh, not only in my understanding and interpretation and preaching of scripture, but in my relationships with other people in the church. I need men around me to keep me accountable, not only to what scripture says, but also to what our confessions say that I have subscribed to, or to what our book of church order says, which is kind of our rule book Mm -hmm. for how we play this game. And so I think in a lot of contexts today, particularly non-denominational churches, maybe there's a network that they're a part of and they've got some Mm -hmm. responsibility toward that network, but it's still very much centered on one person, their vision for the church, their God-given authority, Mm -hmm. and whether or not people relate to them well or not, you know, and and sometimes it's like, hey, if if you don't like it, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology, and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we're on season six episode. We're going to be talking about church government, and we have Reverend Eric Landry on, and he is going to be helping us with this topic and and conversation about uh, learning more about how and why the church is set up in a certain governance in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Um, So if you guys go to our show notes, you're going to learn a little bit more about this season Other seasons we've had, again, this is season six. You can go to our YouTube page. It actually has a playlist of all of our seasons. So you can have a drop down menu and look at all our seasons as well as our book clubs. And so if you want to also, if you're listening this season or other seasons and you you think that you want to uh, check out a reformed church near your area, there is a church finder link. You can click that uh, URC PCA. Uh, there's other reformed churches, uh, OPC, PCA, URC, others, uh, around the, 
the U.S. and and elsewhere. So check that out. And then obviously Westminster Seminary, California is our focus this season. All of our guests for season six, every episode has a guest that's either alumni or a professor or both uh, from yeah. Westminster Seminary, California. So you'll learn about uh, Reverend Landry and uh, how he's affiliated with that school that Peter also went to. Um, so then also just uh, other information about how to contact us. If you're new to our podcast, uh, there's other resources of how to how to engage with us, social media, our email, that kind of stuff. So also wanted to promote this book uh, from Chad Van Dixhorn, Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms. Uh, my seasonal go-to book for season six has been this book uh, published by Crossway. Uh, I'm sure that we'll link that up and and talk about more and, and so you guys can uh, order this book too. It's it's really helpful. Always, every Christian should have something like this at their home. So I'll let uh, Peter further introduce our guest today, Reverend Eric Landry. Yeah, we have Reverend Eric Landry, who's the senior pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas, as well as the executive editor of Modern Reformation, a publication of White Horse Inn, where he's been for quite a while. I've uh, been doing that work for quite a bit, but it's a pleasure having you on our show, Reverend Landry. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. Um, I'm no longer the executive editor. Ah, of I saw Modern a different word though. on there, but I couldn't find it. The page was there. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, your previous guest, Brandon Ellis, Dr. Brandon Ellis that's is right. our executive editor now. So hmm. um, they call me the chief content officer for she, Solar I Media. I saw that page and I looked for it again. I couldn't find it, but I knew I knew wow. it was something different. But I figured you're at Modern Reformation. <laughs> we'll just, I'll just take Brandon's job away from him and give it to you. There you go. There you go. <laughs> that's cool. So. Uh, let our listeners know. So beyond just your church work and your work with Modern Reformation, let our listeners know a little bit about uh, Eric Landry, just beyond your kind of pastoral work. Sure. I uh, was born and raised in the church, uh, baptized at five years old in a Southern Baptist church in Phoenix, Arizona, which is almost infant baptism for Southern <laughs> Baptists. Uh, so that was, uh, that was, that was fun. And my dad and mom eventually moved over to the Calvary chapels and my dad was a Calvary chapel pastor for 30 years. Which one? So that was, um, so he, we were in Arizona. Uh, okay, so that's right. Called, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it wouldn't be one probably that you guys in, yeah. you know, the land of Mecca uh, would uh, would know. <laughs> it wasn't planted by any of the apostles of Chuck Smith. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was my context uh, growing up and then uh, discovered Calvinism when I went to the Calvary Chapel Bible College up in Twin Peaks back in the mm-hmm. day. And um, that was kind of my entry point into Reformed theology. Uh, eventually making my way to Westminster. Um, in addition to being a pastor, as you said, you know, I've got a long connection with Mike Horton, uh, going on 23 years that I've been working with Mike with Modern Reformation and White Horse Inn, and now also under our umbrella brand of Sola Media. Mm-hmm. We have Core Christianity with Adriel Sanchez and also Theo Global, which are overseas conferences for scholars, for the people who train pastors in the developing world. I'm a husband. We got two kids. Uh, My son just started college. So we're halfway to empty nester Mm -hmm. and uh, just back from sabbatical, which uh, means I'm probably less tired than I would have been if we had this conversation (laughs) back in the spring. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, we've Nick's already talked about it, and you've talked about this a little bit. So, all guests in season six are West Cal, so Westminster Seminary, California faculty and or alumni. So, we've got about three quarters of the faculty coming on and a bunch of alumni. Uh, so, we've got three related questions to kick off this conversation. I'll ask them all at once, and if you want to answer them in, in order. So, first, how did you find Westminster and then come to enroll? Second, what was your education at Westminster like? And lastly, how did Westminster prepare you for gospel ministry? Uh, when I started looking for a seminary, a friend of mine had um, been with Dr. Horton at Yale when Mike was doing his postdoc uh, back in the mid-90s. And he encouraged me. Uh, he told me, hey, uh, Horton is going to Westminster, California and his first year teaching would be your first year taking classes. Hmm. So you should uh, you should go and apply there. Uh, so I, I knew of Mike through White Horse Inn and Modern Reformation. I was an early subscriber and listened to, to White Horse Inn. And so for me, it was kind of a no brainer that that's where I wanted to uh, attend. I would not have called myself. Um, well, I should say Scott Clark would not have called me reformed uh, back in that day. You might have called um, yourself reformed, but you weren't reformed. I might have called myself reformed, but uh, I would have yeah. quickly gotten smacked down. Um, right. You know, Calvinistic-ish, uh, still, you know, kind of wrestling with my Baptistic and Calvary Chapel heritage. Um, not exactly sure where I was going to go, but uh, figured that that was uh, the the church or the uh, seminary that I wanted to be a part of. Um, getting there and experiencing the education, um, I think the word that comes to mind is rigorous. Uh, <laughs> That's I, a common theme we've heard on this show, and yeah. I've been through this myself. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, Peter, but like one of my probably besetting sins is always up, particularly up to that point was thinking like I was the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, and suddenly I got to the place where I was not the smartest oh, you, guy in the room. You just anymore. get beat down if you think you're the smartest guy in the room there. And I failed summer Greek. So okay. first class out of the gate, you know, you just kind of take a nosedive. And yeah. I remember the morning of the Greek final and thinking, do I just pack up and go home? <laughs> I mean, if, if this is not going to work, like, what am I being called to? But that has ended up being a point of, you know, kind of pastoral care that I've been mm. able to give to all of my uh, seminary interns that have worked underneath me. And, mm. you know, it's just it's part of the process of, of being shaped for ministry and, and learning what you don't know too. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I think for me, the uh, my seminary kind of experience was different from a lot of guys. Mm -hmm. I was a little bit older. I was 27, yep. 28. When I got there, um, I crammed my three years into five uh, <laughs> as I started uh, working and also got married. Um, and so for me, it just kind of became a formative life experience uh, more than it was just an educational experience. And so getting to know the uh, past the professors there, um, having them really be part of my life. Uh, my wife and I had our wedding reception uh, in Dr. Horton's backyard. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we got married at the chapel. I think we were only the second couple to get married ah. at the chapel. Um, did yeah, you have it at I his have, current house or did he live somewhere else before? No, just current house. Yeah. Okay. 
I have pictures of Bob and Mary Ellen Godfrey dancing on his patio uh, outside. <laughs> if you throw a evening. baseball hard enough from the chapel, you could probably hit Horton's almost house. hit it. That's right. Well, back in that day, uh, Ian and Barb Duguid, Ian Duguid was professor of Old Testament, and their backyard opened up onto the soccer uh, field at the seminary there. And so a lot of times they would have a bunch of us single guys over for dinner, you know, kind of in the middle of the week. So, you know, some of those guys are still, you know, my best friends in ministry and continue to, you know, lean on one another for advice and help and comfort uh, during difficult times. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, we always love to hear that background of uh, yeah. everyone how they're associated, affiliated with the school. They're, yeah. they're how they. Everyone found thinks it. of Westminster is some like huge juggernaut that everyone wants to go to, but there's so <laughs> many different stories of people getting there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's you like I. I worked at a gym about three miles away from Westminster. If you go anywhere outside the the grounds, the hallowed grounds, of Westminster, nobody knows the place exists. No, no but it's that's not right. an entity in right. Escondido. Which yep. is funny because we think it is, but it's not. Yeah. 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 And if if you drive one little weird fact about it that I've never heard it, you mention, Peter, or anybody else, about when you drive there, there's a street called Idaho. And I grew up in Idaho. <laughs> that's right. There's that's, there's a that's road one right next to you. Uh, like yeah. that almost almost dumps you onto campus. It's like a yep. one street over. Yeah. So I remember driving to the campus. I was like, oh, this must be a weird sign to me, even though I never <laughs> went up that. I was like, this is like home away from home kind of. Yeah, God's calling you is like Nick. Idaho, Westminster. Uh, yeah. So this uh, this topic we're talking about today is church government, and I I get it. Some people might be looking at the list of the titles, and it doesn't pop out as maybe the juiciest, like most attractive one of like the Trinity or predestination. It's like church government. Hmm. I would think that you know why does a church have a government? I thought you know are we talking about nations? I mean I know countries have governments. Why would a church have a government? So. It, it, I promise for you guys, it's it's not that dry. We're going to keep it uh, as interesting <laughs> as possible. <laughs> but there is a reason and a structure why the church has maybe a, a government. So going into what and who are all the offices and branches of the Presbyterian church government, and that throws another wrench in, is like, wait, I thought we were talking about introduction to Reformed theology. I thought we were talking about Reformed church. Now we're talking about a Presbyterian church. So Offices, branches of Presbyterian church government. Why is that the same thing as saying reformed? Um, and what are their specific old biblical roles in those offices? Yeah, it's a, an, an enormous topic, right? Yeah. Um, and at the same time that maybe it sounds a little esoteric and like not related to people's real lives, hmm. um, there have sadly been way too many stories of church anarchy, yep. um, of, you know, kind of breakdown, top down control, uh, hmm. bottom up, you know, kind of disintegration. Um, there's all kinds of problems in churches that can be mitigated. They can't be solved, but they can be mitigated by, I think, a better, more biblical form of church government. Um, When I planted our church in California several years ago, and, and we particularized that day, and we had people from the presbytery there, I remember telling my congregation that the presbytery was there to protect the church from me Mm -hmm. that just in case 
things went sideways. Like these were the guys that were there to protect them. And so and we'll get into that more uh, over this next uh, few minutes. But um, when we think about the church government for reformed and Presbyterian churches, which are essentially the same kind of church government, you talk about essentially two kinds of officers or two kinds of leaders in the church. Um, So in the PCA, which is what I'm a part of, we have elders and deacons. And then in our class of elders, we break that down into what we call teaching elders, which in a lot of other traditions are just simply called pastors. Uh, And then ruling elders, which we just, you know, kind of shorten to our elders. So we talk about pastors, elders, and deacons, but we still talk about two offices, not three, mm-hmm. because the you pastors- the, You pissed all the Dutch yeah. people off right there. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So this is something that's true kind of on yeah. the American side yeah. of, and that's that's one of the big differences, Nick, you asked, you know, what is the difference between Reformed and Presbyterian? I mean, the easiest way of thinking about that is kind of where the churches came from. Most of the Reformed churches came from the Netherlands. Uh, most, uh, most of the uh, Presbyterian churches came- from uh, Scotland and England. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when we trace our, our heritage back, we see some differences in church government, but they're not that significant. The one thing I appreciate about the American system where, you know, you have officers, or the officers are the elders and the deacons, is that when I look around the table at the other men in, that serve here at Redeemer um, on our session, I am not above them. Mm. Uh, I'm not below them either. You know, we have a parity of responsibility and authority. And so that's something that can be lost, I think, when we separate those offices. Um, And there's lots of fun, you know, kind of. You're slightly distinguishing between the three office view and the two office view. Exactly. And so, you know, in the PCA, we kind of jokingly refer to ourselves as two and a half office, uh, <laughs> that uh, we recognize that there are a distinct calling that pastors have that is different than our ruling elders. Um, there are things that we don't allow our ruling elders to do that only a pastor can do, mm-hmm. like preside at the Lord's Supper. Um but generally, we want to try to combine those men and their work as closely as possible. You know, what is it that they do? Um, pastors preach. Uh, pastors administer the sacraments. Um, elders rule. Uh, together, pastors and elders provide kind of the uh, shepherding that the congregation needs. Uh speaking into people's lives when they are hurting and they need counsel, uh, admonishing those who are in danger of going astray, uh, spending time with men and women and kids in our congregation to make sure that they understand the faith that we're practicing. So anything that relates to the spiritual side of the church and the growth and the development of the spiritual life of the church is under the purview of the elder. The deacons, on the other hand, they work mostly in the physical realm, the the practical necessities of the church, whether that's the church itself, physically, the the building of the church, the the grounds that surround the church, the money that helps make the church run, or the physical needs of the people in the church. So whether that's uh, folks in our church that, you know, hit a job crisis and they didn't have enough money saved up to, you know, kind of tide them over while they're looking for new work. 
or folks that come in from off the street who are looking for assistance. And so the deacons oversee that part of it. But together, elders and deacons, you know, we talk about a word and a deed ministry. Um, those two things are absolutely essential for the church to be healthy and for the church to actually accomplish the work that Jesus has called it to do. Amen. Yeah. And I know I, I uh, we'll, we'll get back to a, a, a later question I have, how it's tied to scripture. How how uh, this is like because some people will think okay so that's just great this up one day like oh yeah, we'll be did, Presbyterians yeah <laughs> how is this uh, d- uh, described in scripture so we'll get to that point yeah um, and just for sake of clarity by comparison because let's be honest there's a lot more people that are Christian yeah. that are probably going to non-reformed churches yeah this out is there. not the normal what people usually see at their church this is this is kind of a subset you can call it of christian orthodoxy not as if it's beyond christian orthodoxy but it's it's small but yeah and they still might have uh obviously deacons and elders i mean if you're catholic you're you got bishops and you got all this stuff they're like how is this different than what i do this kind of sounds similar so for clarity by comparison how are other christian church governmental structures different from the reformed presbyterian church because some of those differences uh we assume from our standpoint as reformed people we could see there might be some potential higher risks that they experience because their governmental structure their roles are a little different not to call them bad christians but why are we there's a way that our reformed way of government is reducing some risk um, where we could say lovingly to some other church denominations, you know, the way your government set up, there might be some, a little bit more risks of things happening. So yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to like non-denominational kind of broad evangelical churches, that's, that's the regular quote unquote church people go to. Right. You know, when when I teach this uh, to, you know, officer candidates or a new members class or something like that, I used to just go to kind of the three big families of of different kinds of churches. You have a congregational church where, Mm. you know, the congregation holds the power. You have a Presbyterian church where the elders, because Presbyterian comes from that Greek word presbyteros, which Mm. means elder. And so the elders have the responsibility and the power in the church. Or you have an Episcopal church, which, mm-hmm. you know, you were talking about, Nick, about the Catholics, where it's very top down. You got the Pope, the Archbishop, you got bishops and kind of that whole structure. I think, though, to Peter's point now, more and more people are in this kind of hodgepodge mm-hmm. of make it up yourself church government. And so a lot of times it comes down to, you know, one charismatic individual who feels called to go be a pastor. Uh, They learned a few Hillsong songs (laughs) on their guitar and, you know, they were able to find a school that would rent out their auditorium. Um, Soon they build up, you know, two, 300 people that are coming on Sunday morning and people are excited that this is their church and, you know, praise God, maybe they're they're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. You know, we're excited about that but like if something goes wrong do those people know what to do um you know my dad again uh, i mentioned earlier was a calvary chapel pastor and he and i after i became a presbyterian pastor we spent a lot of time actually talking about church government now he had elders in his church that kind of helped helped make decisions with him 
But he appointed those elders, you know, and he could ask those elders to step down. The congregation had no say in that. So ironically, he had an Episcopal style of church government, even though it wasn't connected more broadly um, in a way. I mean, the Calvary system had some connection, but, you know, he was the main guy. He was he was the pope of his church. Uh, and I used to joke with him. I said, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you're a benevolent dictator uh, <laughs> because, you know, thankfully you're a godly, you know, humble man, because in a lot of churches, that's not actually the case. I am a sinner. I can go sideways, uh, not only in my understanding and interpretation and preaching of scripture, but in my relationships with other people in the church, I need men around me to keep me accountable, not only to what scripture says, but also to what our confessions say that I have subscribed to, or to what our book of church order says, which is kind of our rule book mm. for how we play this game. And so I think in a lot of contexts today, particularly non-denominational churches, maybe there's a network that they're a part of, and they've got some mm. responsibility toward that network, but it's still very much centered on one person, their vision for the church, their God-given authority, and whether or not people relate to them well or not. You know, and, and sometimes yeah. it's like, hey, if, if you don't like it, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Mm. Yeah, that sounds yeah. a lot like what happened with Mars Hill. I'm just going to throw it out. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's, no, that's, of course. That, is, that is precise. I was an intern at Mars Hill right before it fell down. That is precisely what happened at Mars Hill. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, those intentions from the pastor, like, I mean, Driscoll in the beginning could have been very good. And then very but good. to your point, there's no accountability, no buddy to really be authority over. And well, it's it almost like by design that they make sure there's no accountability and authority that like they are the last word. And so you can't go to them because your butt gets kicked out. If you, yeah. if you question them, um, yeah. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego, that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face -face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. And that's not to say that we don't 
have problems, you know, oh, in yeah. Presbyterian Oh, absolutely. Churches, yeah. We're not saying this Presbyterian know? church government fixes all problems, like you said, but it, it kind of it pulls it down a level. Well, it's like, you know, the old Winston Churchill quote where he That's talks right. about democracy you know democracy is the the worst uh form of government except for all of those other forms of, of yeah. government <laughs> yeah. i'm not yeah. going to apply that to presbyterianism because <laughs> i actually do think that there's a biblical rationale for presbyterianism but at the same time we have to recognize that a form of government is only going to be as healthy as the people who occupy that government who yeah. who fulfill the calling that god has put on their lives and so you know just a form or process isn't going to be protection in and of itself uh, we still need godly men to uh, occupy those offices and then uh, for people men and women and kids in the church to recognize the role that they play is as members of the church too yeah yeah so digging into this a little bit further um kind of providing some more context we talked about the officers of the church can you describe kind of the levels or the structures mm. of presbyterian sure. government so it's um we've got presbytery we've got um rpc and they call it synod we got general Assembly. so there's all these different words and diff different structures how do these relate to each other how do these relate to the local church and, and why are these for the good of the local church yeah. Uh, maybe let's think about it geographically, okay? Um, so you got something that happens hyper-locally in your city, in your neighborhood, your church, your local church. Mm -hmm. uh, and that local church is governed by what's called the session, or in the Dutch Reformed uh, world, it's called the consistory. Yep. Uh, those are the uh, the elders that gather together and exercise the spiritual care for that particular church. And then in my context, you have a bunch of churches in a region. Uh, I'm in the South Texas Presbytery. And so our presbytery stretches all the way down to the Mexican border, uh, up to just north of Austin, a little town called Georgetown, out to uh, College Station. Uh, so if you ever watch Texas A&M on <laughs> Saturday, you know, college football, that's, that's part of our presbytery. And then mm. out a little bit further west. So it's an enormous presbytery. We've got 30 some churches that are part of that presbytery. And we get together four times a year to do work that helps govern our region. And so whether that's, you know, ordaining new pastors coming up with overtures, uh, ideas that we're going to send up to our general assembly, we do the work of the church regionally. And then again, just geographically, we can expand to a nation, the, the national church, and that's what we call our general assembly. And so once a year, all the churches in the PCA uh, send representatives. It's a representative form of church government. We send representatives to presbytery, and we also send representatives to, uh, to general assembly to do the work of general assembly. But it, it sounds probably like it's just a, a an excuse to have a lot of meetings, and you know that's the big joke about Presbyterians, <laughs> yeah. right? You know how many how many Presbyterians does it take to do X Y Z? I think the thing that I appreciate about it though is the intentionality yeah. uh, that 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 it takes. We know that the work of the church can't just be done by one person, by our one small group of people. We also know that as Christians, as believers, we are organically connected to one another. And so how do we put that organic connection into play and into practice? Well, we do it through our presbytery. We do it through our general assembly. 
the Presbyterian, the General Assembly also act as a kind of overseeing body for the local church. So again, say I go off the rails. Um, my folks here at Redeemer, you know, they can appeal first to our session, to the elders. Yeah. But maybe over the course of several years, I have been successful at making sure that all of the elders are just my yes men. Yeah. Uh, they just support everything that that Pastor Eric says. And so the people here are feeling like, wow, there's there's not actually anybody that's holding him accountable. Well, then you go up to the presbytery and you make a complaint to the presbytery. And here in this presbytery, uh, sadly, I have had to be a part of a judicial commission that worked with a local church because of a complaint against their pastor. You know, sometimes complaints against pastors or, or pastors fall into to moral failure, you know, kind of sexual sin. And that's easy to see and it's easy to deal with in some ways. But what happens if the pastor feels like a bully? Yeah. What happens if the pastor is doing things uh, to to surround himself with people that protect him uh, against some you know good criticism from the local church, especially if, if things are starting to stray? Well, that's a much harder thing to deal with, or to even sometimes discern. Well, that's where the presbytery can step in. Now, unfortunately, in our system and over the 20 years now that I've been in the PCA, presbyteries sometimes get it wrong. And sometimes, you know, we make decisions that um, we didn't, you know, study our book of church order well enough. We didn't know kind of all the facts of the case. Um, We were influenced by friendship. Well, there has to be kind of another level above us to keep us accountable, and that's our General Assembly. And so every year, the General Assembly, not only does it do the work of the national church and set areas of doctrine and practice and and things that we need as a church to get behind, but also it acts as kind of the final court of appeal, our our Supreme Court uh, for issues that rise up from either the local church or the presbytery. Hmm. I had a follow-up question that you answered, and then I had another follow-up question that you answered. That was that was, a, that was a beautiful. That was you. You went exactly where I hoped you went. So I have nothing else to say. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, we're getting some good deep layers. I, I like I told the audience on the front end, you're gonna this is gonna be more interesting than you, you realize. Because... Yeah, people think government like yeah bureaucracy. This is a long process. It's unnecessarily hard and difficult. But then, like you said, this is. This is big stuff when you have problems in the church and what church does not have problems and does not want to fix these problems. It's practical. And it's practical systems because we're all sinners trying to, uh, you know, this is Jesus's church and, you know, we're a bunch of sinners trying to (laughs) do church. (laughs) Do church. I don't want to say run his church because he, Jesus runs the church, but going back to the biblical rationale, Um, so this, the government thing, isn't just some modern stuff that we can start in the 1500s and we're like, Oh, that's a good idea. Let's keep doing this. Oh yeah. We're, we're, we see how countries are run. So let's run our church that way. No, no, this has a biblical rationale. So, um, even though the church government isn't explicitly explained a to Z, like how to checklist how to do things, um, uh, in the Bible that has implicit tones and themes, if you pay attention and, 
examples uh, where more of the Reformed Church is pulling from and getting confidence from from the biblical, uh, from going through the Bible in our church government order and structure. So in particular, um, Acts 15 and 16 is a good place. I'm sure you and Peter can, uh, you guys are pastors, so you could probably pull other ones, but I found Acts 15 15 (laughs) and 16 to be a good practical example for the audience for how the reformed and Presbyterian churches are aligned with the apostles in the early first century church. How can you go into that? How that helps? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there, one thing that you had mentioned is, you know, we don't take our cue from the way governments are set up. It actually works the opposite way. Like governments have taken their cue from the way that churches have been set up. And so, you know, our American system of government, many, many different uh, scholars have have drawn some parallels between what um, our church, our our U.S. federal government looks like and how even just the Presbyterian church itself is set up. And so I'm not, you know, a U.S. historian, but it's interesting that there have been, mm-hmm. you know, people have noticed those parallels. And our system of government predates uh, the yeah. uh, the U.S. system I mean, You look of at government. the court system, you look at how court systems work in, right. on the city level, on the state level, on the federal level, and you realize, oh, there's, yeah. there's kind yeah. of the same thing going on there. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think the most helpful thing that we see in Acts 15 is the gathering of these leaders who have been pulled together to hear reports, uh, particularly from Paul and Barnabas, who had been sent out uh, to do some evangelistic work, and now they're bringing a report back. And then this gathering is making decisions that is affecting believers in local churches. So they're not, I mean, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing that we need to pull out of Acts 15. Um, I don't think that we see a perfect analogy to uh, what we have in our presbyteries or in our general assembly, but what we have are some principles that come out of Acts 15, which is church leaders gathering, and then those gatherings issuing rulings or decisions that then affect the bodies that uh, have sent the leaders of their local churches uh, to this gathering. So it shows a certain level of authority that then flows down from the assembly to the local churches. And particularly in Acts 15, it's it's on matters of worship. Uh, so, you know, you get to the council's letter to Gentile believers, and it talks about issues of, of how the, the, the church is going to structure itself around issues of diet and worship and, and whether or not certain circumcision is going to be required of these new Gentile believers. The thing that, as I was preparing for our conversation, that I don't think that I noticed uh, before in working my way through the book of Acts um, is looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 6, and then again, verse 22. In verse 6, it says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And then if you skip down to verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. And I don't think that I've really ever paid much attention to the fact that it wasn't just the apostles who had gathered together. It was also the elders of these local churches. And the apostles aren't kind of sitting in the in the, the, the council above the elders. 
No, they are in parity with the elders when they're making these decisions. And so one of the things I I think that also helps us understand is in this kind of transitional phase of the church's history, as the apostles aren't going to continue on, you know, as, as an office themselves, they're working with the elders who didn't see Jesus, who, who weren't eyewitnesses of his resurrection, but they're working with the elders to share authority in the local churches and to make decisions that affect the local churches. And I thought that was a, a you know something that I had not really noticed before, but also helps me have a, a, a better sense of how did we get here? Uh, why do we have these elders? And then you know, we can move on from Acts uh, 15 and and see how uh, a Presbyterian form or principles that inform a Presbyterian form of government uh, are kind of spread throughout the New Testament. Yeah. Um, you have the Ephesian elders that Paul calls out in Acts chapter 20, and he tells them, he says, you have the responsibility to guard the flock of God over which God has made you overseers. And so there's a sense of responsibility and authority that is given to those specific elders uh, in that specific city. Um, you know, in Philippians chapter one, uh, we we shift the language a little bit away from elders to overseers. Um, in 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 the way that we think about that, we see that not as a different office, but now kind of calling them by what they do, right. not just giving them a title, but calling them by their actual work. If the elders in Ephesians chapter 20 and Ephesus were overseeing the work of the, of the church, well, it makes sense then in Philippians chapter one for Paul to call them overseers. And he, he addresses that letter to the overseers and to the deacons, the, the leaders of that local church. First Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one, we start having qualifications for who can be an elder, who can be a deacon. In Hebrews chapter 13, you have the admonition to the local church to obey the church's leaders. In James chapter five, uh, you have James saying, hey, if someone's sick, uh, you need to call the elders of the church to come and pray for you. Um, First Peter chapter five, you have Peter um, admonishing the elders to shepherd the flock of God. And so it's something that's specific to, to to their responsibility to provide that care, that spiritual care and oversight of, of the local church. That's that's so. You, I guess you could say there's some biblical support for. Yeah, I think there's just a little bit. Government. Yeah, there you go. Brilliant. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll summarize that for people. Like, there's a lot of biblical support. Um, so <laughs> what, what I want to get to as well, like Nick pointed out of the New Testament foundations, <clears throat> is is this only found New Testament? Is this like is this purely a New Testament thing? Do we find Old Testament allusions? Maybe the temple. Is there anything that helps us say okay? Apostles aren't just making something up. Are they pulling from Old Testament allusions to help to help them with their church structure as well? Yeah. So it's different in the Old Testament, and also the context is going to be different. So, like, if any of you who are listening, you know, are going to do like a word search, you know, you pull up your ESV app or you know, go online and type in "elder" and look kind of where it shows up in the Bible. 
you also need to pay attention to the context of that verse because elders are going to do different things in different places in scripture. The very first time that we read about elders in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 3. Hmm. In Exodus chapter 3, God tells Moses at the burning bush to kind of go to the elders of Israel and to let them know that he has heard the the cries of his people and he's going to begin um, releasing them from the bondage of Egypt. Now, who are those elders? Do they have a spiritual authority? Are they just kind of the the maybe the the, the recognized cultural leaders of Israel? I think that they probably are both. I think they do probably have a spiritual authority because as the book of Exodus moves on, we hear about the elders, Exodus mm-hmm. chapter 24, who are being brought up onto the mountain mm-hmm. with Moses and Aaron to eat and drink with God. You know, and, and one of the things that Peter and I learned at Westminster Seminary is when you have these scenes of eating and drinking with God, that means that a covenant has just been ratified. And as part of that ratification ceremony, one of the very last things that happens is the great king and the lesser kings, you know, channeling my Meredith Klein here, um, uh, are, are sitting down to eat together to ratify that covenant. Well, that's what we see in Exodus chapter 24. They're acting as representatives of the people of God. And that same kind of representative or representational nature shows up in Joshua chapter 7, verse Uh 6. This is after uh, Israel is defeated at Ai because, you know, nobody knew it, but Achan had stole some stuff. And then... What happens? Well, it's not just Joshua who goes up to the ark of God to call out to God to say, what happened? Why did we get defeated here? It's Joshua and the elders of Israel. So I think, you know, kind of in the earliest form of Israel as a nation, you have these elders representing the people, uh, not just in a, uh, a nationalistic kind of way or a cultural way, but also in a religious way. One question that sometimes comes up with this is whether or not those elders are the same as the 70 judges oh, yeah. that Moses, uh, you know, remember yeah. Moses's father-in-law Jethro says, yep. Moses, you're going to die. Like you're going to kill yourself if you keep trying to all judge these cases. Yeah. all of these cases. And so he says, you know, choose a bunch of guys to help you. I think I used to think that they were probably one and the same, that these judges were also the elders, but I don't think that that's actually the case anymore because they're distinguished several different times. And particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 21, you have this command to bring both the judges and the elders together. So there's, I think they're a a different class of, of people that eventually occupy a kind of rule over the people um but they but they don't have they're not the same as the elders of israel now i mentioned before that you also need to kind of pay attention to the context if you keep reading through the narrative of the the old testament you're going to read about elders who sit in the gates of the various Mm -hmm. cities making decisions about what happens to the people in that city Uh, one of the most famous ones is the book of ruth right i was about to say that's ruth course yeah 
Yeah, Boaz calls the, uh, the 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 leading men, the elders of the city, and you know he presents his case uh, for for marrying Ruth. Are those the same kind of elders that we read about in Exodus or in Joshua who are going up to the ark and interceding before God for the people? I think that they are a different class of people. Um, I think that they are representative locally of those towns and cities, but I don't think that they are truly the elders of Israel who have a kind of religious obligation uh, before God. Now, in some ways, it may be that that kind of goes away a little bit. Maybe you think, well, you know, with the establishment of the priesthood, is it really important to have these elders anymore? Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either 15 or $20 a month or a single donation, you can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have and we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. What's fascinating is that these elders of Israel, the same kind of people that showed up in Joshua interceding before God, having a, a religious authority and responsibility they show up right before the exile as well. Hmm. Um, you might remember in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh -huh. chapter 8. In Ezekiel chapter 8, uh, God tells Ezekiel yeah, through a vision, he says, I'm going to take you into the inner sanctum of the temple. You're going to bore a hole in the temple wall, and you're going to see what actually is happening inside my temple. And when he does that, what he sees are the elders of Israel offering idolatrous worship. So instead of being the religious leaders, they end up leading the people astray. So I think kind of even through the course of Israel's history, there is still this recognized body of men who are the elders of Israel who have a responsibility before God for the people. What's interesting also is the exile, that group continues on. So that in Ezra, when Darius sends Israel back, sends the Jews back to the promised land, back to Israel in order to rebuild the temple, he empowers the elders of Israel to be kind of, you know, we're, we're familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, but there's also this broader group of men that. that have the responsibility um, before before God and also even before King Darius, because Darius is opening up the treasury of the empire to help fund the building of this temple. Mm -hmm. So you have this group still there. And then if you're a careful reader or not even a careful reader, just a casual reader of the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts, the elders of Israel show up in Jesus's ministry yeah. and in the early life of the church, too. 
And by that point, it seems to have been something that has coalesced into a more formal arrangement, uh, what we call the Sanhedrin, Mm -hmm. uh, the Council of 70 Elders that were also made up of some of the the priests and some of the high priestly family who have a formal oversight, who have formal oversight even under the Greeks, even under the Romans, but they have a formal oversight of the religious and cultural life of Israel. So we see elders not just as kind of respected old men who sit at the city gates making casual or you know making decisions about the life of that city, but you also see this group of men through the Old Testament that function in a way that puts them that makes them responsible for the people of God um, from the Exodus even past the exile uh, into uh, the ministry of Jesus. Hmm. That's oh, really that's so helpful. Cool. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's not taking a one to one correlation how the Old Testament did it, how the New Testament did it. There's continuity, there's discontinuity, and so they're picking up some threads. They're not creating, but they're they're forming new threads. So it's that's that's really helpful for how we see Old to New Testament worship, church government, and where we find new, uh, the New Testament apostles not changing things necessarily, but it is now kind of a full bloomed. Yeah. I mean, it's building. It's building on principles, right? Um, Because, you know, there's going to be a radical discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant once the priesthood is is transferred from the sons of Aaron uh, into everyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. So we see that radical discontinuity, but there's also continuity. There's a building on what Israel looked like, what, you know, the, the, the synagogue worship looked like and the early church worship looked like. So there's, I think that's a, that's a helpful way of putting it is like, there's, there's just, there are things that are going to feel very familiar. And it's also probably, you know, that the, the, the apostles of the church, you know, some of the early converts might've been some of those elders of Israel who then, you know, have this sense of responsibility for their people. And so maybe even that same sense of responsibility is carried over into the New Testament church. And also uh, a surprisingly helpful episode in this season that could go with what you're saying is the Republication episode with Lee Irons Mm -hmm. we had Mm -hmm. and, and seeing, because what you did was amazing. You you took a topic church government and you, you connected it to biblical theology. <laughs> Just so, and not only that, you got deep into the Old Testament. I mean, for so our it's, biblical, it's, what, it's it's we it's uh, as Reverend Landry knows. Like you can't not do it as a West Cal person. It's just right. like it flows yeah. through your bones. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, you said something earlier too. I wanted to point out. Because um, I'm not before my last question. I'm just anticipating the audience when you're talking about qualifications of elders in the New Testament. So let's flip our brains back to the New Testament. Um, there's a gorilla in the room, controversial type of thing that would be good to kind of to to clarify. So First Timothy two twelve with the qualification of elders. If when someone reads that, they're thinking, "Oh man, Paul, you're being really." harsh like te- women can't teach at all this or seems very esoteric or, yeah or mis- paternalistic seems, or whatever it is it seems harsh and it also some people could think oh this isn't even consistent with the rest of scripture because there's a lot of women teaching things uh in right. in scripture there's deborah the prophetess so Priscilla, they're like, yeah 
Paul, did you read the Old Testament? What are you what are yeah. you talking about? So so if you read it for what it is, first Timothy two twelve, it just says women aren't allowed to teach or have authority over a man. They must be silent. How do we go from there to being saying, no, they're just how our church government is? Because obviously women still do teach in some sort of way. So could you sure. clarify that for us? Yeah, I, I would recommend that you make that an entire episode someday. Um, yeah, I think I this is uh this is a this is a big one. <laughs> Nick, and open up lots the can of our, arms. <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of our local churches, you know, particularly those that only believe in that or that believe in male only ordination to uh to to pastor elder and deacon. You know, this is an area that we've got to be able to have an answer for that we have yeah. to also wrestle through as we think about, well, what does it look like then if 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 Peter on the day of Pentecost says that the prophecy of Joel, the last day's prophecy of Joel has been fulfilled and your sons and your daughters are prophesying, you know, what does it look like for us to restrict some of the work of the church to only some men? And it's not even all men, yeah. but it's some yeah. men who are called to this work. I think maybe one or two things that I would want to point out about that passage is I think that Paul's language here of teach and rule is also very interesting, right? Um, that is the the work of the pastors mm -hmm. and the elders. And so I think that one of the things that he is identifying there is not a blanket prohibition yeah. on women speaking in the church, because yeah. in First Corinthians, he's, he's, he's judging and, and giving yeah. guidelines for how women prophesy and yeah. pray in the church. Um, um, and then you also have, you know, what happens outside of the, the formal worship service. You know, he wants Priscilla and Aquila to teach Apollos. Yeah. And he wants to make sure that that little home Bible study, you know, turns this, you know, kind of superstar preacher into a biblical theologian and make sure that he has the, the grounding to continue his ministry. And of course, he would be familiar with Deborah, the judge, with Huldah, the prophetess. I mean, to all of these people, the daughters of Philip in, in the book of Acts, who are also prophesying. I think it's really focused on what does it mean for these particular small group of men to be called as officers in the church, particularly the yep. pastors and the elders. And then that's why, you know, when you turn the page and you get to first Timothy three, he gives that instruction that it's, it is only men who are being called to that, to those offices. You know, in our context today, there's lots of discussion about whether or not as Presbyterians, we have misunderstood the office of deacon. Yeah. Uh, and, you yeah, know, the RPCNA has back... its own deal with women yeah. deacons right now. And so do, I mean, so the Associate Reformed Presbyterian yep. Church does as well. I mean, you can go back to the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, yep. a very conservative Lutheran body. They have deaconesses. Yep. So, I mean, I think that's going to be a big discussion for our small corner of the church in the next few years. Um, but I think at least for the elders and the deacons, or excuse me, the, the pastors and the elders, you can see from the very beginning of scripture until the very end of scripture that those offices have been limited to a particular subset of men. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I really want to emphasize here is it's not all men. No. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, I think principally we can also say he doesn't allow all men to teach yeah. or exercise authority. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you're not ordained and set apart as an elder, you don't then, teach or yes, preach. Yes, you have a 
you have a you have a general office yeah. calling to teach, uh, to uh, share the gospel with other yep. people, but you don't just get to have that you know platform because you are a guy. Yeah, you don't just walk um, up to the and, podium Sunday morning and it's like I got a word for you. It's like that's not how this exactly. works. Exactly, that's, that's exactly right. Got it. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Felt like we had to address that. Um, so Jesus is the king of creation and his church. So it's a good way to underline just uh, understanding the creator creature distinction. He is the king of creation and this is his church. He's in charge of it. It's his people. It's not the Pope's church. It's not a celebrity pastor. It's not the president or king of a nation, but Jesus's church. So knowing that focus of our authority, how does that reflect our view of regulative principle of worship? Yeah. When you sent me this question, I wasn't exactly sure where you're going with it. Um, <laughs> so I did a little bit of research and um, T. David Gordon, who is a PCA uh, pastor and New Testament scholar uh, back East, he has a really interesting, he draws a really interesting parallel here. And if you don't mind, I just, I want to read what he said. Um, he says the church is an institution instituted by the positive command of the risen Christ and authorized by him to require obedience to his commands and participation in his ordinances. The church is given no authority to require obedience to its own commands and is given no authority to require participation in ordinances of its own making. The regulative principle of church government lies behind the regulative principle of worship. And I think that's a helpful way to, to make sure that we understand that there are limits to the authority of the church. And, and, and we can't impose, you know, kind of our will or even um, uh, extra biblical rules on the people of the church. We can't, we can't bind their consciences. And that's the whole thing about the regular principle of worship, right? It isn't that, you know, we're these dour Presbyterians who <laughs> yeah. don't want to do anything. All these rules. It's that, no, yeah. this protects the people because I'm not going to sit here and come up, you know, kind of with my best ideas about how the church should worship. I'm going to go to scripture because those are the things that I can tell the people of my church. Yeah, you must do this because scripture says this. Yeah, this is well, not my authority. Way, this is the word's authority that tells you. The word's authority. And I think in the same way when we think about church government, it has to be constrained, it has to be limited by what the by what scripture says. That's really good. Yeah. So this, this is a good transition to my last question before we kind of end this conversation. You've already um, dipped into this topic, but I really want to end on a on a practical note. And that's for, I mean, the majority of our audience are, are lay people. They're, they're not pastors, they're not elders. They're just people who are either faithful attenders or thinking about going to church or wondering about this whole Christianity thing. And so they're wondering, okay, why should I go to a Presbyterian church? Why should I go to one of these kinds of churches versus kind of my, my local church that's around here that everybody goes to that's big, that's non-denominational, that's kind of fun. So what? why is this, and, and I'll emphasize, why is this good for members of Christ's church? In other words, how do these structures, offices, branches, all this stuff that we love, talking about as, as Presbyterians, Robert's Rules of Orders, we are our devotionals <laughs> are to that, to the BCO. Um, but what 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 is the good for the members? How does it ensure that Christ's flock is taken care of in a more intentional way than if they were not in place? Yeah. 
I think I would want to make sure that we humbly acknowledge that it is not just an unqualified or a certain good. Um, we can get bullies in the pulpits of Presbyterian churches. We can have terrible elders and deacons serve in Presbyterian churches who will twist, you know, kind of our practices and our government to suit their own ends and to hurt the people in the church. And if you don't believe that, you know, you just need to show up to a general assembly every yeah. year and hear about the cases that oh, eventually make their way to there. But the fact that we have a general assembly that tries, and sometimes I don't think they always get it right, but they at least try to provide that accountability is far more than what you're going to find in most of your kind of broadly evangelical non-denominational churches uh, down the street from you. And so I think what what I appreciate most about the, the, the form of church government that we have is it gives me guidelines and it gives my people expectations so that when I am out of that guideline, when I am operating contrary to it, it's they're not being, I, I can't gaslight them, right? I can't go to them and say, oh no, but this is what the Lord has told me. And so if you want to be with Jesus and be, you know, kind of on, on the train with where the Holy Spirit has taken us, you gotta, you gotta follow me. No, they can say, no, this is what you said you believed. This is this, this form, this government, this is what you have promised you would act under. And if you're not doing that, then you need to be held accountable. So it provides some form of protection. Now, again, we can mess that up still, but it's not perfect. It won't be perfect until Jesus, you know, is, is, is back and we are all perfected in him. But until that day, I want something that is bigger than me and my vision of Jesus to provide kind of the care and comfort for the people that God calls me to shepherd. And I think that Presbyterianism gets as pretty close to it as, as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's, yeah. I, I, like I've, I know a bunch of non-denominational pastors. My, my wife's father is a non-denominational pastor. And I mean, they're, they're he's, he's a fantastic godly guy. There's, yeah. if I were to go to non like I would go to his church. Right. There's, there's no 100%. question about that, but, I'm thinking, like you said about myself. I was like, man, I, I, I don't want the buck to stop at me because if it stops at me, like you said, there's like my human proclivities will come out in some way, shape, or form, and it just like it, it can go unchecked, and it can go unchecked in Presbyterian form of government, to be sure. Um, but I've got people above me who who tell me like, hey, man, you're you're out of line. That's uh, right, and That's right. like they hold ultimate authority over me. I. I can't say like, right. no, I'm not going to listen to you. It's like, well, you're going to get defrocked. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> Which, I mean, it happens. It happens every year in presbyteries all around the United States. You know, uh, not everyone is going to be as famous as a Mark Driscoll, you know, kind of Mars Hill situation. But sadly, you know, the, the work of the church sometimes means making those hard calls. And it does happen. And it doesn't happen because we want to be mean to the poor no. pastor. It happens because we're trying to protect the flock of God. Yeah. Amen. And the fact is that the stuff does and probably does uh, happen at non-denominational churches and things like that, but you don't hear about 100%. it because it can't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's you hear about the to... big cases because they're big celebrity pastors, but the yeah. small ones, yeah, where do they go? There's no transparency. Yeah. There's no one for anybody to go to. So it just falls on either deaf ears or people don't bring it up. 
yeah. We're at not, least we'll, we bring it up. What I what I want to underscore, I think Reverend Landry has underscored it as well, is we're not saying Presbyterian churches are holier than non-Presbyterian mm-hmm. churches, nor are they better in some spiritual way, but it's there's just more checks and balances in the road that that keep us closer in line, not all the way in line, but closer in line than it does if it, they were not in place. That's um, exactly right. So Reverend Landry, it's been a pleasure having you on. So what we do is we end each episode, especially with pastors, to talk about your congregation, talk about the time you guys meet, where you guys meet, how people can find you. So if somebody's in the Austin area or traveling to the Austin area, yeah. has friends in the Austin area, where can they find Redeemer and what you guys do? Yeah, we're on uh, the east side of town uh, between MLK and Maynard on Alexander Avenue. Our web address is Redeemer Press, Redeemer, P-R-E-S dot O-R-G. Uh, we meet at 845 and 1115 every Sunday morning. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, well, Reverend Landry, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for, we've had a, you can call it a, a scholar's perspective on Presbyterian church government with Guy Waters and now we've had still a scholar, but a, more particularly a pastor with Presbyterian Church government. So it's been a bit of pleasure having a, a pastor's heart, a pastor's mind for his flock to come on and, and talk about this under Jesus's authority. So thank you so much for coming on, for talking about this in a, in a way I hope makes sense for people who are not mm. in Presbyterian churches uh, who are asking, like, is, is this a good idea? Should I go to one of these places? Mm. We want to make it a little less scary on the mm. front end to go to one of these places and for them to say, Oh, this is, this is for me. This is, that's why yeah. this exists. This is for me. Not to mm. say it's sensitive in that way, but it is, it is built to provide protection for members. So thank you Absolutely. so much for coming on. Talk yeah. About thank this. you guys. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to reform theology, where all of our guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world. Where we talk about reform theology through the lens of our confessional tradition, Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Cans of Door. I myself. I'm a graduate of Westminster. I'm heavily influenced, obviously, by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well. Yeah, and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in Reformed theology, this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons, the last few years in the book clubs, but particularly the, the focus of this season whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, has been helpful, and you'll get a understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself, and most especially uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah, so if you guys want to find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catcher, but especially those two, rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend, that's, that's usually how we how we uh, build our, our crowd. 